0: I want you to hit me as hard as you can. This extraordinary gentleman is probably the most famous Scotsman to ever live. Sir Sean Connery is a very talented veteran of film, television, and stage. He's Mr. Universe, the sexiest man alive in Bond. James Bond. He's a man's man. He's the manliest of manly men. In a good way. He's always charming, even when he's not and he had no formal training. He's just an Oscar-winning, self-taught actor. Sean Connery considers his body an instrument to create art. He used his humanity to channel his character's emotions, not his accent, because he sounds the same in every damn movie. And you know what? I'm totally fine with it, because that's Sean. He's a guy who has always stayed true to himself, and it was that philosophy that allowed him to rise to the top of Tinseltown. For decades, this sexy man was a superstar, and with a few action-packed blockbusters and some in-depth character studies, he has established himself as Hollywood royalty. But then, one day, he simply vanished, turning his back on everything cinematic. But why? Why, I ask, why? Why would the biggest movie star in the world walk away? Well, my mission, if I choose to accept it and I accept it, is to get to the bottom of this and find out what the f*** happened to Sean Connery. Hello. Felix, say hello to Dink. Hi, Dink. Dink, say goodbye to Felix. Mm -hmm. Uh, man talk. He was the son of poor, working-class parents, and he joined the Navy at 16, but was discharged for medical reasons. Sean was a skinny fella, and he decided to bulk up, and this led to him becoming a professional bodybuilder placing him in, like, second or third of the Mr. Universe contest. And after that, he was offered a job as a professional football player, aka soccer, but he turned it down on a whim to pursue an acting career. But he didn't really think it would lead to anything serious, he just loved the thrill of being on the stage. Don't we all? His first big acting job was a member of the male Chorus in South Pacific. And this led to a critically acclaimed performance in a BBC production of Requiem for a Heavyweight. It was a knockout. He had many other roles during that time, but none did much for his career. Until another time, another place. With Lana Turner, whose crazy mobster boyfriend threatened Sean with a gun. But Sean Connery, being the badass he is, disarmed the man and punched him right in the kisser. He's a freaking badass. Every time I saw you, I knew I'd have to tell you. My. His performance in Another Time, Another Place caught the eye of Disney, and he made his first trip to Hollywood to be in Darby O'Gill and the Little People. This was a rare time when Sean didn't speak in his natural Scottish accent. He changed it to Irish, which is close enough in my book. My darling Irish girl. And this film caught the eye of the James Bond producers, but it really was his performance in Anna Carinia in 1961 that showed the world, and those James Bond producers, that he was a force of nature when it comes to acting. And that allowed him the opportunity to nab the greatest role of his career. Or any career, really. It was time for this Scotsman to play the world's greatest British spy. James Bond 007. You've heard of him. Ian Fleming was actually very against casting Sean. He wanted Cary Grant, but they couldn't afford such a star. Remember, Dr. No was actually a low-budget film, and they really couldn't afford any movie star, so they had to create one. A star was born and his name was Sean, not Lady Gaga, or Barbara Streisand, or Judy Garland, or the other one. Producers actually thought it was impossible to find someone who had the right physicality, and acting chops, and sexiness to play Mr. Bond, but Sean had it all, and more. Bond. James Bond. So in 1962 came Dr. No, the film that kicked off one of the most successful franchises of all time. Like, they're still making them, and it has shown no sign of slowing down. And why is that? Because the formula works, and we can all thank Mr. Connery for that. And Ian Fleming, and the Broccoli Guy, and the editor, and the screenwriter and the, and the best boy, but we, we can thank all of them. Ian Fleming eventually learned to love Sean Connery as James Bond, and he even rewrote the character's backstory to be half Scottish. My grandpappy introduced me to the James Bond films, he had the Sean Connery VHS box set, and we watched those things over and over and over. My sister and I would even sing along to the theme songs. But let's get back to Dr. No, shall we? With this iconic character of Bond, Sean Connery redefined the action star, and every action hero since is either trying to copy him or live up to him. He had shaken up Hollywood, not stirred. James Bond made him an instant superstar. He was an overnight international sex symbol. Men want to be him, and women want to be with him, even when he's rough. Liar. <laughs> But of course, Sean Connery was a victim of his own success. His James Bond films were so successful that it was hard for Hollywood to imagine him as anything else. And he found himself caught in typecast limbo for a little bit. Sean desperately wanted to have fun and play a wide range of characters. And he would have to work hard to prove that he was more than just a badass super spy. I can totally relate, can't you? And in the same year as Dr. No, he appeared in the ensemble cast of The Longest Day a fantastic World War II film. It's like Saving Private Ryan, but old. Then came Sean Connery's all-time favorite James Bond movie, From Russia With Love. This film features a fabulous performance from Sean with an even more fabulous hairpiece. There's a saying in England, "Whether smoke thus fire. But in 1964, he got the chance to do something completely different from James Bond he got the chance to work with Alfred Hitchcock. That's right, the great Alfred Hitchcock in the film Marnie. It was a great departure for the actor, and the world could see that he was not a one-hit wonder. You can always count on Hitch to pull you out of the ditch. That's what I always say, starting now. And of course, there was Goldfinger in 1964 and Thunderball in 1965. Both of these films were huge successes. Like, huge. Like Guinness Book of World Records huge. At the time. Then he did The Hill, directed by the great Sidney Lumet. Not Sidney Lumet. Lumet. It's shot in beautiful black and white. The cinematography on this one is amazing. And Sean received much praise for this one. Even though it was not a commercial success, but it was still a triumph for Sean as an artist. And after this film, the curse of the typecast was lifted. And he was now free to explore other types of films while still kicking butt as Mr. Bond. He was pretty good at balancing his serious actor career with his James Bond franchise, something very few actors could do, especially at that time. Well, at any time, really. He then threw everyone for a loop and wrote and directed a documentary about labor conditions in Scotland called The Bowler and the Bunnet. It was the only film he ever directed, but but wow, look at that. And that same year he did another James Bond film, You Only Live Twice. Don't Tell Drake. YOLO. And Sean Connery gets to turn Japanese in this one. And by this time, Sean's relationship with the producers was not good at all. And he refused to act if the producers were present on set. You Only Live Twice was advertised as Sean's last stand as Mr. Bond. But it wasn't. <laughs> Sean thought that his Bond days were behind him, but the studio kept calling and calling. So Sean decided to do something completely unheard of in Hollywood. He has always had a passion for helping out his fellow Scott, so he used his million-dollar paycheck from Diamonds Are Forever to build the Scottish International Education Trust, helping talented people get opportunities to grow as artists and athletes, paying it forward, giving those diamonds to other people so they can last forever good celebrity. That's a good, good celebrity. Yes, it is. The floodgates for more in-depth characters opened wide up, and they came pouring in. He got to do new, interesting, very diverse films, like The Red Tent, The Molly McGuire's, and The Anderson Tapes, also directed by Sidney Lumet. Now Sir Sean had the power to produce his own films, and he teamed up again with Sidney Lumet to make The Offense. It's a very controversial film where his character forms a strange relationship with a child molester. This was far from his days as 007. And even though the critics praised this wonderful character study, the film did very poorly at the box office. Probably because of the subject matter. And Sean soon learned that even though he was making interesting, thought-provoking films, his star power was not enough to guarantee a box office hit every time. Then came Zardoz. Am I saying that right? It's more of a bad acid trip than a movie, and it features the most ridiculous costume ever put on film. Many describe this film as embarrassing, but his star power was still strong enough that it didn't completely ruin him. In fact, some actually respect Sean for taking such a risk. He looks stupid as hell, but he owns it, and I love it. Then there was Murder on the Orient Express, another great Sydney Lumet film. He really likes working with Sydney. I mean, don't we all? And he worked with the great John Milius in The Wind and the Lion, where he plays an Arab. He can play any race. This Scottish man can just be anything he wants, can't he? I love it. Then he worked with the great John Huston on The Man Who Would Be King. It's an epic tale, and it was very popular in the 70s, proving that Sean was still king. While on set, John Huston even compared Sean Connery to Humphrey Bogart. That's quite the compliment. Sean Connery has wonderful chemistry with his co-star Michael Caine, and the two remain friends to this day, to this very day, while I'm speaking. It's a fantastic film about war, friendship, the human condition, what it means to have power, and to... It's about a lot of stuff. It's one of Sean Connery's best. Then there was Robin and Marion. He played Robin, as in Hood. And this film is pretty much the reason why he makes a cameo in Prince of Thieves, which is one of the best cameos ever. And after that, he joined another ensemble cast in A Bridge Too Far. It's another great World War II motion picture, and this one was directed by Sir Richard Attenborough, the Jurassic Park dude, which is funny because Spielberg actually originally wanted Sean Connery to play the park owner, but Sean was too expensive for this Michael Crichton movie. Speaking of Michael Crichton, Sean worked with him in 1978 on The Great Train Robbery, where a train gets robbed, and it's great. He took a lot of risks with his filmography in the late 70s and the 80s. Some films were hits, some were misses, like Meteor, It's like Deep Impact and Armageddon, but in 1979. And it was hated by the critics. And there was Outland, it's a nice 80s sci-fi flick. It's high noon, but in space. And there was Time Bandits, a wonderful, surreal sci-fi adventure from Terry Gilliam. And the part was actually written with Sean Connery in mind, but they never thought that he would actually agree to do it. But luckily, Sean is a huge Monty Python fan. Well, the gods must have given you a name. Oh yeah, Kevin. Kevin? Well, Kevin... Here, it's yours. And those tubular 80s included the final James Bond performance in Never Say Never Again. It had been over 20 years since Dr. No. Returning to that character was thought to be impossible, but that's what Sean does. He does the impossible. But sometimes doing the impossible isn't always a good thing. This is a very unusual Bond. This one was not produced under MGM. And some people don't even consider this a real James Bond movie, but technically it is. Plus, Roger Moore was still Bond at the time, and he had been for years. Never Say Never was actually released during the same year as Roger Moore's Octopussy. So in 1983, they doubled the double O. This negative Bond adventure caused Sean to take a break from the spotlight, but just for a year or two. Next was Highlander in 1986, where he played an Egyptian. Cuz... why not? Everyone was fine with it. It's totally fine. Sean Connery can play an Egyptian if he wants. And Egyptians, you can play Sean Connery if you want. Due to his hectic schedule, the filmmakers only had one week to film all of Sean's scenes. And he was paid one million dollars for that week. That's a good week. You have the manners of a goat. And you smell like a dung heap. And you have no knowledge whatsoever of your potential. Now! Get out! Then there was the name of the Rose. He played a medieval monk. But Sean's star had fallen a bit at that time, and casting him actually caused Columbia Pictures to back out of financing the film. They did not believe in Connery. It's hard to imagine, but at that time, Sean was a box office risk with no sign of a comeback. Anywhere. In sight. But then he had the biggest comeback ever with the Untouchables where he won Best Supporting Actor at the Academy Awards in 1987. He didn't expect to win, it was very shocking. He was officially untouchable. You can't touch this. Sean is wonderful as the no-nonsense Chicago cap. Then there was the Presidio in 1988. I just like saying it, the Presidio. Presidio, I don't even know if I'm saying it right, I just like saying it. And then the following year was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He stole the show from Indy and kicked some Nazi butt. Spielberg had always wanted to make a James Bond movie and this was his way to do it, but better. Sean played the father of Indy, a hero who was inspired by Bond. And this time Sean is kind of a nerd and it's wonderful. Spielberg himself even said that Sean Connery was the only actor strong enough to believably be the father of Indiana Jones, even though Sean Connery is only 12 years older than Harrison Ford. But that's movie magic for ya. I think every movie should be as funny and action-packed as The Last Crusade. Ah! Then People Magazine declared him the sexiest man alive in 1989, calling him older, balder, better. Then he kicked off the 90s with the hunt for Red October. And remember, Sean never abandons his thick Scottish accent, even when he's playing a Russian. That's how good Sean is. Nobody had an issue with a Scottish voice coming out of a Russian submarine commander. It was totally fine. Nobody even thought about it. It was like, yeah, you're sure, you're Russian. Why not? That's how good he is. Sean always says that emotions are universal in any accent, so it doesn't really matter what the character sounds like as long as the performance is true. And then there was Highlander 2, the quickening, which every person in the universe hates. And even the entire cast admitted to doing the movie just for the money. Roger Ebert voted this film the worst movie of 1991, and even the director walked out of the premiere. So we just pretend that this one never happened. Then he was directed by the great director-slash-convict John McTiernan in The Medicine Man. He was a man who had the power of medicine. And there was Rising Sun, where he played a detective again. And Just Cause, where he plays a lawyer hungry for justice. There's no one beyond my reach! You hear me? No one! Did you kill him?! Then he got to be King Arthur in First Knight. It's a great honor. And of course, as we all know, Sean has a powerful voice so powerful that when it comes out of a dragon, it's totally believable. In 1996, Sean played Draco, the dragon, in Dragonheart. And I don't care what anybody says about this movie, it's a childhood favorite of mine, so. And as a 90s kid, I loved Dragonheart so much that I carried around my Draco action figure everywhere I went in 1996. People are still talking about it. They're like, hey, remember that kid who had that Sean Connery dragon carried around everywhere? What a freak. Hello. And also in 1996, he did the action-packed blockbuster The Rock. He was gracefully aging while still maintaining his action hero persona. It was better than ever. The Rock is one of the best action movies ever made, and it actually still holds up today. This is Michael Bay at his best. This is what Michael Bay was born to do. The best Bayham you can ask for. Actually, this film created Bayham, I think. Perfected Bayham, at least. You right! Yes, yeah, perfectly okay, you fucking idiot. Then Sean was in the Avengers. No, not the cool superhero Avengers, but the lame British Avengers. I believe he turned down the role of Morpheus in the Matrix to do the Avengers. And then in entrapment, he was able to seduce Catherine Zeta-Jones. And this sexy old man love story would not be believable with any other actor. Well, maybe Michael Douglas. Sean got to watch Catherine Zeta-Jones dip through those lasers. It's a. Uh, it got bad reviews, but I liked it. And there was Finding Forrester. It's a lesser Gus Van Sant film, but it's still pretty good. My friends and I would always quote the part where he says, "You're all the man now, dog." We just found that part hilarious for some reason, and we were probably the only twelve-year-olds in the world quoting Finding Forrester, but it was fun. Yes. Yes. You're the man now, dog. Then he was offered the role of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, but of course he passed on that, which would have been the perfect film to end his career with, but no. He chose to do something less extraordinary. That's right, Sean Connery went out with a bang. I mean, he went out with a bomb his very last role was the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And he retired right after that, so he never had a chance at redemption, but his career was strong enough that these gentlemen couldn't completely ruin Sean. But his resume does end on a sour note, and everybody always wants a happy ending. This film had a very troubled production, and it probably didn't inspire Sean Connery to hang around the Hollywood scene. Sean even went so far to call the director a lunatic. Connery even forced himself into the editing room to try to fix this mess of a movie himself. I don't know, I liked it when I first saw it, but I was young and stupid. Now I'm older and... and really smart? But I watched it again and it's so boring. You can feel the potential in the movie, but it does nothing. It's such a cool concept and that makes it even worse. I love the concept of all these classic literature characters coming together to form a super team. Then I read Alan Moore's graphic novel of this, and I realized what it could have been, and now I hate it even more. But The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was Sean Connery's last appearance on the silver screen. That's right, he hasn't been in a film since 2003. I'm not very good at math, but the year right now is 2020, and that's a lot of years. But the question is, will he ever return to the silver screen, and do we want him to? Many respect his choice to retire, and others were disappointed that he was throwing in the towel. But if he kept acting, he could have made many, many more horrible films and completely ruined his legacy. Not just ruined his legacy a little bit. Nah, it's it's probably best to step away. He conquered Hollywood, and there was nowhere else for him to go, but down. And I don't want to see Sean go down. So I say let's just let good old Sean enjoy his golden years. You gotta know when to fold them. And he never gave one single reason for retiring. He was just done. You know, sometimes people get tired of doing things and they're just finished. And that's okay. You can't just do things until you die. You gotta stop eventually. We, we can't keep playing if you don't let go of the pickle. That's what your mother said last night! <laughs> and I don't see much chance of him showing up in that new Indiana Jones movie that they claim they're making. Because they killed him off, off-screen, in Crystal Skull. Even though Spielberg wanted Sean to make Crystal Skull his big comeback. But it was a good thing, no, a great thing, that Sean did not join the adventure this time. Sean actually considered doing the film, but decided that retirement was just too much damn fun. And Sean likes to have fun. Now he spends his time playing golf, like all old white men. Trading in playing on the screen for playing on the green. Sean actually has no interest in getting back in the game. Once he even joked that only a mafia offer that he couldn't refuse would get him back on the screen. But he did not officially retire his voice. In 2005, Sean provided the voice for the video game of From Russia With Love, because his grandkids love video games and From Russia With Love is his favorite Bond film. So we wanted to make sure it was done right. And then he did some god-awful animation called Sir Billy. Has a whopping 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. But Sean Connery, you will always have 100% in my heart. When I don't think about your stance on hitting women, that is. You did an interview in which you said, it's not the worst thing to slap a woman now and then. As I remember, you said you don't do it with a clenched fist, it's better to do it with an open hand. Mm. Yeah, remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't I love that. I haven't changed my opinion. Yeah. Well, uh, he... Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well... Yeah. So, um... He's one of the greatest actors to ever live. Uh, And he's one of the coolest, most charming men in the world. So I just want to say thank you, Sean Connery. Thank you for all of the great films. And I think I have some Scottish blood in me when my parents did that DNA thing. So I just want to say thank you for representing the homeland. Sean Connery turned down many hit films, and he didn't exactly follow the rules of Hollywood. But that makes Sean Sean, and that's why we love him. He's a bad boy, but you still trust him to have your back. And don't worry, Sean, you can keep enjoying your retirement because you've done plenty, more than plenty. And nobody should give a what happened to you. Now I shall leave you all with this thought. Sean is so amazing, so talented, so charming, so cool, so sexy that even Michael Ironside says he would go gay for him. I'd fuck him. And that's what the f*** happened to Sean Connery.